Welcome to Punch Card Investing, a weekly show dedicated to all things value investing. Whether it be analyzing companies, pitching ideas, or discussing moves by the best investors in the world, we're trying to get one step closer to punching an investment off of our cards. Let's get started. Thank you, intro man. Always, always starting starting us off so strong. He's he's remarkably consistent. I, I know you've noticed that James is a longtime follower of Punch Card <laughs> Investment. <laughs> but uh, uh, welcome to the show. Um, we'll, we'll get into more about you, James, in a moment. For those of you who aren't familiar with your fine work in the value investing space, but before we get into today's episode, we're going to be talking about all things management and and evaluating management, looking for red flags and all that sort of stuff. But before we do that, um, just want to remind everyone to subscribe if you haven't already, since we do put out a new episode every single week, or at least we try to. And most of the time we do get our weekly live show in, and we expect to have quite a bit more content coming out in the near future uh, besides just our live show. And James, you might be playing a part in that (laughs) since since we've been discussing some of that stuff. Um, But a number of people have come with some decent ideas on, on new content for for punch card and trying to really get the ball rolling with with some of those extra avenues for growth on the channel so uh, really looking forward to that um, so be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any of that and check out all the other stuff in the description below including our links to share site and seeking alpha you can uh, sign up with a discount link through those links so uh, you can get a discount on the on the premium services, or you can sign up for the free versions as well. Just make sure to use our link because if you ever switch over to a paid plan, then uh, we, we might get a small commission, which would be really nice and would help out the channel a lot as we try to grow more and more. Um, otherwise, like, comment, subscribe, all that great stuff. Let's get into it, James. Uh, first off, welcome to the show. I don't think you've ever been on. Uh, you've never been on Punch Card at this point because uh, no, that's the first time. Um, cause, cause you're, you're in Britain and, uh, for those of you who don't know, James, he is the man behind firm returns. I discovered you on Twitter. I, I believe you have a newsletter as well. Um, yep. and, uh, yeah, I don't know if you want to tell, tell the folks a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, yeah, I've sort of started firm returns, I think tail end of last year, maybe November, December time, and sort of slowly built it up from there. Um, kind of started off as a just a way for me to do some extra due diligence and and make myself a bit more publicly accountable for my my investment decisions stopping me from doing you know high higher frequency buying and selling get a bit more conviction with everything and it's sort of grown from there and I've been able to make connections with people and and I learn from them and I've kind of upping the due diligence further by attending AGMs, reaching out to management, what have you, that kind of stuff. And um, even had the the CEO of one of the co- my companies uh, do an interview with me. So that was quite, that was quite good. Yeah. That's pretty sweet. That's the power of social media, right? So, um, yeah. I mean, I mean, that's how we met as well. So it, it's, it's a very small world out there um, that's made increasingly small by uh, yeah, stuff like Twitter, YouTube, all the great social media platforms where you can reach out to so many different people. So um, more power to everyone in that way. Um, but yeah, so, um, you, you put out a lot of good content on, on your, your own platforms. Um, and you mentioned talking to CEOs and, and, and management directly, <laughs> but uh, I guess that's kind of a good parlay into our, um, into our, I should say a segue into our topic of evaluating management. I don't know if you come into this with like a checklist or something when you're looking at stocks, but, um, what what are kind of some of the initial things that you might be looking for, uh, maybe from a high level or even a, a more specific level uh, when it comes to management? Yeah, so I mean, I've got a few things written down here to as uh, as prompts, but yeah, I've got a. I think largely the, the sort of setting the stage for it is that I want to see some sort of alignment with shareholders, and that uh, that's sort of like the the baseline I think for for any kind of management to be really looking for when you're when you're looking at their incentives and what have you so i mean i've i can sort of break this down to a couple of things so one one obvious one is that the management has a substantial shareholding of their own so in cases you know in some cases you'll have them where maybe there's a founder of the company and they'll have a really substantial stake and obviously that's a thing but in other cases where 
maybe it's a there isn't a one large sort of shareholder in there or or the management themselves aren't the the founder and the the founder's now just a member sitting on the board and the management and they've they've recruited the the ceo and what have you i quite like to see in quite a few of the companies i invest in have sort of minimum shareholding requirements so they'll sort of say like a management has to hold at least two times their salary their base salary or something like that in stock which i always think is is quite good and then um yeah another sort of aspect of that is that sometimes if you do have a a founding uh shareholder that has a very substantial stake and let's say maybe it's a family controlled business or something like that and they've recruited a ceo it becomes slightly less important i think this the ceo's holdings at that point and then it's it's more about how they're incentivized and that so that's where i'd get on to the second bit which is um incentives so I like to see that a large part of their remuneration is performance based. So they're going to earn this. In fact, be variable. So on, depending on how well they do, there's not like a really high level baseline amount they get paid. Sure. Um, but but also when it comes to the actual metrics that are used to measure performance, I, I do generally prefer to see per so at least some per share metrics in there because sometimes you've got you can have situations where management will do uh, dilutive, will issue new shares to do dilutive uh, acquisitions because they'll grow the headline earnings figure, but on a per right. share, you, you don't you don't see the benefit. So that kind of stuff, those kind of targets to protect the per share metrics can protect against that kind of thing. And there's there even within that though, there's still like uh, I think timelines matter a lot as well. If, uh, mm. If they did a metric by a certain time period, they might sacrifice long-term output to try and pump up short-term output to get, you know, whatever metric that is. Even even then, there can be some finer details to pay attention to, especially if we're talking about like stock options or anything like that. Mm, yeah, um, and some um, and sometimes sometimes part yeah. of their remuneration is paid on depending on the share price, whether it's an option or sometimes yeah. even bo- bonuses have like a maybe a third of the of the component right. of calculating the bonus will be what is this did the share price go above this certain value or something yeah so yeah right things can affect that yeah yeah that 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 can get pretty intense just uh, uh looking at compensation in general what whatever it's tied to whether it's per share which is probably better than not but at the same mm-hmm. time is that per share metric in the next three months or in the next 10 years you know so a lot of that can, it can make yeah. a big difference um e- even at that level so it's just kind of a very case-to-case thing, I would think, um, or, or certainly in some cases. Um, yeah. Um, so what else with uh, compensation um, is there to look for? Because obviously we're familiar with stock options or or stock-based mm-hmm. compensation for um, executives, but there, there are kind of other things to look for as well. I'm thinking like certain benefits like, you know, expenses, private jets, traveling, all that good stuff that really isn't necessarily uh share dilutive but is um is coming right out of the cash or 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 whatever it's still an expense that that shows up um any other things like that maybe to look out for yeah well that's definitely a thing i mean um it's not so bad i mean a lot of the companies i invest in on the smaller side so they probably couldn't afford private jets anyway (laughs) but But, um, But even then then. yeah yeah definitely something to look out for in in those kind of things um and I think um, it can also be quite good when you're looking at like the performance metrics people have set to just have a gauge yourself and say, what's the threshold? What do they actually have to do to to even start getting the earning it? And then what's sort of the maximum there? So, um, and and you really want them to be pretty stretching, yeah. And and I think you can also something that's quite good when it comes to sort of evaluating management's uh, past performance. Quite a, uh, that give you. I mean, this is something you can do manually yourself by just going back and pulling out various annual reports. But some some companies will actually disclose like a table of like the last the performance for the last five or ten years. How the how the management is actually whether they managed to achieve their target level on the different metrics, and that can be a good exercise to do just to see whether. The target, if they've managed to do it easily, if they managed to hit the max every single time, that could 
either be wow they're a superstar ceo or it could be well they've been setting them really easy <laughs> targets here you know <laughs> yeah. so there's, there's a bit of a balance between those two um but yeah that's probably what i would say on the on the performance side yeah Luis offers a, a good question here is there a company that you skipped because of the management incentive uh it, it's weird to think of pat, uh, opportunities you've passed over but um I don't know if you have any that come to mind right away, but uh, probably, yeah, go ahead. Well, I think a lot of, in a lot of cases, those are the ones that I probably would have passed on for valuation anyway. <laughs> yeah, they're right, often right. The, That's kind of what I'm thinking. The um, overpriced ones, aren't they? That they get the, all the millions of stock options and what have you. I feel like you only really get to, this is at least the way I would look at it. I really only get the management after you get past some of the, baseline financial metrics. That's kind of how I operate. I look, hmm. you know, first maybe at cash flow trends, historical financials before I really get into, you know, uh, the granular things about management usually, but uh, there are exceptions, but um, typically uh, if it, it it's going to be unusual. I think that you're going to see a combination of like really good valuation and, and good, um, good financial metrics and everything on top, but with like terrible management incentives is usually, it seems like a bad company will often have bad incentives. And yeah, I think so. Maybe, yeah. maybe that's an oversimplification and just like a selection bias thing, but it's just a, it's a feeling I have. I don't know if you feel the same way. Yeah. I think most of the companies that I've got past those first filters that the management conversations norm- normally ended up being quite rational and I've been fairly happy yeah. with it. Um, because it normally means the company's fairly well run, the, you know they've got a fairly good board and what have you. Um, that's setting the conversation quite well, so correctly. So, um, so yeah, I think those early filters can be <laughs> could be something that screens out the uh, before you get to the stage of skipping on companies because the conversation. Yeah, you get to it either way. Like it's just when and yeah. Uh, I I don't know if I'd really count it as like management compensation, but just share buybacks in general. And that maybe this can be talking about capital allocation decisions with management, but uh share buybacks, I feel like are kind of wrapped up into this as well, especially given like if they have a, if they're compensated based on per share metrics, um, retiring shares through share buybacks could be a way to manufacture some of that. Um, mm. And in some cases, share buybacks are totally beneficial because the stock is, um, undervalued and, and they have excess cash to use, then, you know, then sure it makes plenty of sense in a lot of those cases. But, um, if the, if the shares are expensive and you're still seeing huge buybacks or worse yet, maybe the company's taking out debts to maintain a buyback program, that can be a big red flag too. So, um, I, I assume you look at share buyback history as well with, with the management team. Um, uh, and I guess also any plans they might have, but, I don't know if you have any thoughts on buybacks and yeah. dividends. Yeah, I mean, matter. so there are some some of the companies I own. Um, there are some that would be well. That there is one in particular that's a bit growthier, and they do actually have a um, what they call an employee benefit trust, which is, I mean, I'll just start by saying that the options they're giving out are not egregious anyway, but but they are. <laughs> effectively to prevent dilution they are they have created this trust which is effectively just for it's it's more for the uh, lower level management and sort of like um maybe like the lower level share option schemes people wanting to um participate on a an individual level and stuff of that low down in the company rather than compensating for management being given big share options and so on um so that that's yeah. sure Th- that is one example of one where it's been to to offset dilution but um yeah. most that's, of the other companies that's actually pretty common that sort of interrupt that that you yeah. see that a lot where a company will advertise that they're they're oh we're buying back shares but it's to cancel out yeah. dilution elsewhere and it's okay on, on nets you're not really doing anything they're, they're pretty clear about it, yeah. They're not. They're yeah. not trying to say, "Oh, we're giving you all this money back" or anything. They're just being yeah, quite clear. Yeah, but I think there are plenty of companies that aren't that clear about it, um, and it's easy to miss, especially just because mm. uh, share-based compensation isn't doesn't show up on cash flow statements, um, generally speaking. So, um, you know, it's a it's a it's a very easy thing to overlook. 
um, a lot of the time. So yeah, but that's, that, that is a good point though. Just you got to look at the whole situation on nets to get a good feel for that. Yeah. And I, I'd say most, most of the other companies I'm investing in where they have done buybacks, it, it's been entirely because they think the stock's undervalued. So, mm-hmm. and they've, and it, it's been a, a way of returning capital to shareholders in a way. So, uh, so yeah, I, I wouldn't say I've, I think any of the companies I've owned have done any kind of egregious stuff like that, like trying to just basically buy them at their options and pretending <laughs> that they're, they're, give, they're pretending it's yeah. some form of dividend. I think they won't explicitly say it, but they won't they won't really come out and admit it either. They'll, they'll just kind of be very quiet about it either way. Um, uh, but yeah, uh, what about um, anything else on capital allocation in general? There's plenty you could talk about in there. I don't know what you think about dividends in general, but um, I, I wouldn't think dividends would be a, a red flag in general for management. But I think why is the dividend get, being given out? Uh, is there really nothing else they could do with that capital? Uh, yeah. yeah what, some, do you have any thoughts on dividends? There's different ones. Like um, there's one company I own that's kind of a family run, well, basically family controlled company. Um and it's it's got a long history, you know. The family's basically had it for generations and generations, and it's kind of like the the dividends are being paid out on a just a regular schedule because that's how the family lives. <laughs> so you know, and then it's a, uh, but it's also um, a lot of the shareholders that own it, and, and so I mean they have had a just there are especially in the UK there is a real attraction to to shareholders to have. Well, it helps to keep the stock price up if they have a regular dig, um, dividend schedule that that's incrementally gone up for decades or whatever. I think um, this particular company I'm talking about has had like a 70 year track record of dividend um, increases or something crazy like that. So it's uh, yeah, it, it can be a nice market as long as long as the the dividend cover ratio stays the same. It is right. kind of a good, it is a good marker of a company that has been able to continuously grow its it's uh operations and and earnings yeah. so um it can be that's a, that's that a tricky situation too though when, once a company has had a dividend for a while and they like kind of lean on it uh i would i always see that almost like uh, handcuffs and that they feel like they they can't really get rid of the dividend and then if they do you know there's gonna they're gonna have to answer to all these people um so i i'm, I'm always a little skeptical or wary uh, at least a little bit uh, of that sort of thing um, just because of that. But I'd almost want to see that management has been willing to do, to take a dividend on and off uh, mm. in their history. Cause then it shows that they're not just doing it just cause, but rather because like, Oh, we have all this cash and not really much to do with it. And we've paid down debt. So here you go. Like I, I could get kind of behind that a lot more than, um, just doing a dividend for a dividend's sake, if that makes it, sense. But, it does depend uh, how stable the company is. Like if once it gets to a certain size and then they, then it is a case of we can't really do much. We can only reinvest so much of this. So dividend kind of makes sense. Like I've got an yeah, example of a company. I think that's pretty rare though. I think that's pretty rare. Um, um, well, I don't know. I've got an example of a company that's about sure. three, 300 years old. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's rare. That's what I'm saying. It's, a, it's, not, it's, an it's not impossible. Yeah. True, true, true. Yeah. yeah, it's um, it's an insurance company in the UK called Aviva. Um, I own, and it it's quite an, it's, it relates well to this actually because during the pandemic, mm-hmm. um, in twenty twenty, they because of the the risk of increased insurance claims, they cut their dividend, and as a result, the stock price absolutely tanked. <laughs> and that was a and I was l- lucky enough to spot it and dive in and picking them up. <laughs> At yeah, what right. now? What well, realizing that it was a temporary thing and that the it was very likely this dividend was going to come back. And I looked at it and went, so what would the yield be if it went back to its level of the, the, prior to the cut? And it would have been something like a 13% yield or something crazy like that. So, <laughs> nice. so I picked, I picked them up the shares over that price. And then of course, within, within about two years, it fully gone back up and it's gone beyond where it was the level it was before so now it's uh well nice yeah the, the shares a, appreciate nicely yeah so that's so it's so goofy why that happens just okay the company cuts its dividend i get that's going to hurt some people who rely on the cash flow but even then you like the company still has that cash and you have a share of that company so the value shouldn't be 
necessarily affected um, so much. But it, but yeah, you see that so often when companies cut their dividend, people head for the hills. It depends on why they're cutting it, of course. If if there is actual financial troubles ahead, that could be a big reason well, people are selling. But um, yeah, I mean, it does create opportunities. Like, I mean, part of the yeah. part of the reason that, for instance, Warner Brother Discovery is tanked so much since they since they did uh well since effectively warner media was spun out of at&t was all the at&t shareholders which then ended up being majority owners of the combined entity afterwards uh were largely holding at&t because it was a nice dividend paying stock and so once they once they realized oh now i've got these shares that don't pay me a dividend it was that that put a lot of selling pressure and they just wanted to offload that and they weren't really interested so um yeah, they just treated it in a way as like the actual shares were a dividend that they could just sell, and that was that would have been just that had just been a distribution to them. So that that drove part of the reason the stock price was driven down so much. So it could does that, that kind of uh, desire to have dividends, and I mean it's certainly something when people get to sort of uh, retirement age and so on, and they're wanting to just get an income, yeah. and obviously the dividends do make a lot of sense. So a lot of the holders, perhaps, of some of these um, dividend paying companies are people that would fit into that category so it, it does create opportunities for people that are willing to look beyond just the dividend yield to the to the company behind it um yeah can create bargains i i i guess this this kind of brings up something i've thought about before that i don't know how to feel about it because technically you know the board will have a fiduciary um obligation to to shareholders but is it good or bad when uh, when management maybe ignores shareholders and decides to go with a rather contrarian decision that maybe benefits the company a lot more in the future, or is or is it better when they when they yield to shareholders when they when they want something? Um, I, I don't know how to wrestle with that question, but I've, I've thought of it a couple of times before, and um, I don't know how much weight to give it, if any. Uh, I don't know if you've, if you've ever thought of that. Just like, yeah. Well, I actually yeah. had a point on my list here that was something similar to that. <laughs> does sure. management li- does management listen and respond to shareholder concerns? <laughs> yeah, my yeah. Points well, well, down. Maybe what I'm getting at is, are the concerns even valid? <laughs> you know, your concerns yeah. are not valid. Some sometimes, perhaps that is the case. Maybe that that's a situation where uh, the company needs a, a rotation of the shareholder base. <laughs> In that. Buffett wants Buffett wants uh, you know only good shareholders that are going to be long term <laughs> holders. Yeah, right. Get rid of get rid of and, the paper handers. Yeah, <laughs> not people. Diamond hands he, only. Certainly doesn't want people that want dividends, does he? <laughs> right. Um. Okay. Well, yeah. I guess that that kind of addresses it. it. It really just depends on what the concerns are. Um. That's more of a judgment call, really. Um. Maybe maybe I'm looking at some of my notes as well. Uh, kind of along those lines, what about uh, you mentioned kind of going through the history of, of, of metrics they're hitting, but just strategy and implementing strategy, things like that. Um, how, how do you even begin to evaluate that? Do you just look through old annual reports? Do you, do you look at anything else uh, just kind of on the strategy they have? Are they executing it? Uh, and then using that to evaluate their strategy going forward, of course. Um, I don't know if you have a process for that as well. Yeah, well, I think that's definitely something that, um, well, yeah, there's there's a certain amount you can do beforehand going back through old annual reports, like you say, going back through old presentations, what have you, just seeing what the how the company's strategy has changed over time. But it's another one of those things that, as they say, you start to get as you – once you own a company and you start and you continue holding it you you start to get to know these things more and you start to see how management delivers over time and it can either increase or decrease your conviction in your holding um so i do think sometimes that is something that you as much as you can try and get yourself to that level of conviction beforehand it's only really when you start to hold it and you're following it at the level that you will when you're actually owning the company that perhaps you see you start to see some of these things and yeah. how they really are delivering and yeah, how the strategy that, really is unfolding. Yeah. That's the hardest part of our research is getting interested in a stock that you don't already own. Uh, <laughs> so it kind of it kind of helps when you do own it at least a little bit. The the incentive uh, incentives change when when there's actual money on the line. And that's for better and for worse. Um certainly a lot more emotions right. involved. 
depending on how stoic you are. Uh, well, so for them, let's say you are holding the, the, you do buy in, you start evaluating management. What are you paying attention to exactly? Do you, do you just, do you go back to an old report, look at their plan and see how they did uh, on, on this earnings call or something like that? Or like, well, what are you, what are you looking at uh, to kind of track that progress? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it is just, you can try and tell the story of the, of the business, can't you? And sometimes, sometimes you, this is something you can, you can look back and you can try and look at their earnings history. Perhaps you can maybe look at the stock price movement and try and see, I like to go back and see what were the events that drove these things. So sometimes it can be good if a company's had a sudden drop in the share price at some point, have a look around through news websites and stuff like that and see if you can find something from around that period that could have been some news that triggered it um, sure. and and get a bit of a history of the company and how it's evolved. And then and then you can sort of try and put up a bit of a timeline as if you were holding it for that time. Uh, it's something I've, I've done in the past. Yeah. Good idea. Yeah. And that just helps. To, it's good to get that picture of, right, so how has management responded to these troubles in the past and, and you know, yeah, have they delivered and, and what have you you can sort and you can see all of that the it, the evidence comes in looking back at the financial results did they recover or whatever if they if they the, the company had had a fall or did the share price recover as they as they started to implement whatever strategy they were doing and the shareholders rewarded them for it Thing, things like that can be uh can definitely be good things to try and try and get that picture build up yeah what about fraud? Do you, do you even consider um, a manager who maybe has had fraud in the past, even if, even if it was ten plus years ago, a long time ago? What? Um, uh, uh, how do you I've weigh not, that? Do you consider it? I, I assume you I've, consider it, but how do you consider it? Yeah, well, I've not encountered it with any of the companies I've owned, so um, I can't that say. You know it, of <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah, we're assuming that we're assuming that it's come it's come to light. Yeah, I I, I don't I haven't encountered it. Um, but yeah, I think it would definitely weigh in. I think that would be a case where, I mean, I've found it particularly when some of the companies I've had have, have been through real turmoil. It's it has been good to have actually, especially in the smaller names, which are normally the ones that are more volatile. It has definitely been good to have actually met management, to attended the AGM, spoken to them in person, whatever. And that's the kind of time where I think that really helps you to keep conviction with it and to really determine whether these this person is trustworthy and some of that kind of stuff is very hard to gauge from just looking at talks and and things like that so if it's not i think the fraud angle is perhaps not something um i know there are big fraud cases and what have you but yeah in with some of the larger companies it generally the the possibility of fraud decreases so it's perhaps something in the smaller on the smaller end of the spectrum that you have to you have to do a bit more due diligence for yeah i guess um oh I, the question just slipped my mind but I, I was gonna follow up on that but um but yeah i i guess uh oh yeah um in actually meeting management so i think Monish fabry has talked about it before how you want to be very wary of meeting with with CEOs, with executives, because they tend to be charismatic. They, they tend to really be passionate about their company, which is all well and good, but um, that can kind of uh, influence the, your judgment, your independent judgment of the company if they're very charismatic, um, if they're very salesy and all that sort of things. Um, so since you've actually met some, some CEOs and companies you have invested in, how... Uh, do you keep that in the back of your mind? Do you just kind of write it off? Is, is it purely a feel thing? How, how do you go into that? Well, I think the most important bit is to, and this is, this would make it a more, you know, determines whether it's going to be a productive meeting anyway, is to have done most of your work on the stock before you actually attend and you actually meet management. So then you can, it That's means you can ask much more, you know, piercing questions. Um but it also means, yeah, you are somewhat. You, you, you can you, that sheen hasn't been put in front of your eyes before you start looking at the financials and stuff like that. So <laughs> I do find that's that's probably the best step to to have done that stuff. But it's also a case that you probably don't. Maybe for the the really big companies that the management are more polished and they are sort of you know. Um, 
much more salesmen and what have you. I do find with the smaller companies, they haven't perhaps had the the opportunity to build up that experience of being the crazy, you know, good salesman and stuff like that. They're a bit more. <laughs> they seem they seem a bit more genuine from the guys I've spoken to. I don't think I don't think I'd have. I don't think not not would not that I'd ever get a chance to meet um, some management of of you know the multi billion dollar companies, or whatever. But sure. Um, but yeah, I think they would be much harder to read as people than they're much much less open because they've, they've got that experience of doing a lot more public speaking <laughs> with with journalists and and you know what <laughs> maybe stuff, yeah. they're more cunning and clever yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's an interesting point um at the same time like kind of some of these founder entrepreneurs they, they're it's it's both good and bad they're often singularly focused on, on the mm. business which is great for you know they're going to put their effort into it, but at the same time they're they're, they're going to be very biased towards it. And any anyone's going to be very biased towards their company, you would think. So I, I think just going in, I like the, I like your point about coming in researched. So at least you have some perspective. And if they say something that doesn't line up with your expectations, you're going to be like, what? <laughs> and then yeah. maybe they'll address it. And if the, the if the addressing is BS, then you know you can move on or not. But uh, Maybe it's just kind of, it sounds kind of almost like a journalist sort of journalistic sort of value. You you should know who you're speaking to before you speak with them. Ideally, at least a little bit. Ideally, mm. a lot bit. But um, uh, and that and that'll probably save you from a lot of trouble because you actually aren't going to walk over a minefield or or get trapped into something that, that you weren't expecting. Um, so I, like I think that, that, I think there are a lot of parallels between journalism and investing, actually, in terms of the, the actual research and due diligence process. Yeah, mm-hmm. I think there's there's definitely a lot of the common skill set in some respects there. Yeah, so it's a good I, a good comparison. Yeah, when I, yeah when it comes to research and um, uh, I, you know, I, I have a, I have like a history background, and it's a lot of the same stuff. You're you're looking at bias and things. Uh, or my my favorite Charlie Munger quote: "The show me show me the incentive, and I'll show you the outcome." It's kind of along those lines. If someone's biased in a particular way, they're likely going to say something that uh, that is within their bias. So you know, if you can identify their bias, it makes the whole analysis a lot easier or more effective because because you know where they're coming from or or you know what they're trying to get to. Um, so. And that's the, that's the same thing with journalism. You want to know what the bias is before you get into it. Um, that'll make things Absolutely, a lot yeah. easier and more effective. Um, okay. What about, um, what about some kind of great things you'd like to, we've kind of talked a lot about red flags and, and general things to kind of watch out for, but is there anything that you see, if you see management doing something in particular, you're like, yes, that's great. Um, I like to see that, and that's a great sign. Any, anything like that. So, what I really like to see is if if I, um, you know, if I look at a stock and I think this seems like the natural path or natural strategy that management would take. If management then goes and takes that strategy, <laughs> that's always a big, <laughs> big green tick. And it's there's actually complicated things. <laughs> yeah, there's actually there's actually a company that I'm uh, invested in at the moment, and I. Um, the first thing I saw when I saw it, it was it's trading at something like a, uh, I think about a two thirds discount or at least a fifty percent discount to book value, and um and the and it's all very tangible. It's all real estate okay. largely largely in London. Um, oh, okay. So very very high quality, and um and the business is very uh, that's actually running at it. So it's basically a a hospitality business they have um, pubs and 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 restaurants so it's quite um quite i would say you put it in the premium sector which is why it's quite recession resistant which is obviously part of it being in london which is one of the most you know most expensive place in the uk and what have you mm-hmm. um but it's you look at this and it's like their their sort of strategy in a, in normal times is to invest in trying to acquire and they put something like i think they do between 20 and 30 million pounds uh, so put multiply that by 1.2 or something 1.254 to give it into dollars but um and then they they split that fairly evenly between 
doing sort of uh, upgrades and what have you on the existing properties and keeping them in shape. And then the other half they'll be look, using to sort of expand and try and uh, add capacity to the existing ones or to buy new establishments. Then I was just sort of looking at this and going, if the if the stock is currently trading at about 50% of book value, let's say, how there's no way they could possibly find premium real estate in London that, you know, sellers that would be willing to sell it for half of its value. <laughs> so any deals they're doing to go in and buy new properties are not going to be as good as buying back the stock. So surely it makes more sense to do that. And then lo and behold, uh, at the AGM, they just announced they're going to do a share buyback program and it will be about a million shares, which is could probably going to be working out depending on it's a fairly illiquid stock. So this price will move fairly quickly on it. But um so they might not be able to it might not stay at the current price while while they do it buying all those shares, but could sure, work out right. to be sort of five to ten roughly the money they would have spent buying proper uh new venues uh is now being spent on buying out the shares because obviously they're immediately getting a effectively a two X on any investment they're making there. Because they, be they're getting twice the alternative, them. yeah. So, so just seeing that was immediate validation. It's like a big green tick. Like, yeah, management is doing the right thing here. This is definitely the right, the right action for them to be taking. So, I think that's yeah, that's a big thing I'm looking for <laughs> when it's sort of evaluating. Then you just you could just see logical approaches. <laughs> yeah, are they following a logical yeah. approach? Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I've got a few more. Um, few more points we can touch on if you want um yeah before we go maybe for have... uh, yeah so i mean because we're just dipping back a little bit to negatives perhaps um oh, there's plenty of those so <laughs> it's just uh, so i've sort of said here you know when you're evaluating performance predominantly i'd like to focus on the underlying business so you know because that's something that they're largely in control of more than the share price um but Contrary to that, if the share price has been depressed for a long period of time, that can be a bit of a warning because it's, well, if it's been depressed for a long period of time, management probably should have taken some action to address this and they should have perhaps done some share buybacks or whatever to help pull the price back up to its fair value. And and the reason it's good to do that, other than just shareholders getting returns, um, is that I see two two ways that it's beneficial. If you have a higher share price, it gives management more options for uh, potential merger and acquisition opportunities if they want to do deals in in equity or whatever. But it also gives them opportunities to do if the if the price does get above fair value, they can do equity raises, pull back some value effectively, and and reinvest that in the business. and And they've they got more value than they than they gave out in in the shares because they thought it was above the price. But then the danger is if you have a low share price, and this is something that as I've learned from experience, I've been bitten by. Um, if you have a, a company trading at a low share price, if it doesn't have certain protections like high inside ownership and stuff like that, uh, like a controlling inside shareholder, for instance, it becomes quite vulnerable to takeovers and things and takeovers can happen well below what you perceive to be fair value. And if the stock's gone down, that could actually end up being below the price you paid <laughs> for yeah, the sure stock is. when you thought it was fair. cheaper. So it, it is a real danger. And so the stock staying too low for too long, especially the UK seems to be a real target for that at the moment. We've got a lot of uh, US companies coming over and picking off our uh, small companies at <laughs> way too cheap value. So uh, it's definitely something I, I'm, I'm wary about, and when I'm when I've been sure. investing since, because I got stung by it with one particular company. I didn't. Yeah, there's not enough runway or enough time for it to recover to what you think it should. If someone swoops and, in and gets it for well and, below that, and the share, and you'll find that a lot of institutional shareholders really don't have conviction at all in any in any of the thing they're investing in. So yeah. they'll be sure. as soon as soon as as soon as things are looking a little bit rough, they'll immediately go. I'll take the quick exit because it's probably just a small portion of their overall portfolio because they invest in a hundred stocks or whatever. They'll take the quick exit um, just to de-risk the position, even though it's well below the price you should, you know, it should have been paid for. And you, you don't have any option. You're just a mi- you're just a, a minority holder that's just taken along for the ride, and it's, the stocks effectively sold out, sold out from underneath you. So that is a big risk if if stocks get too cheap. So um, yeah. 
a reason for management to try and keep the stock around its fair value if they can through through buybacks or or issuing new equity if it gets above. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, <laughs> the stock is too low for too long. It doesn't sound like it'd be a red flag, but it could be for a lot of reasons. We talked about it a good bit on the um, uh, the the value traps episode. Mm. Uh, uh, we we had um, uh, Patrick and Tom were on that one as well, uh, and that. That, that, it's not even just like a management question, but yeah, asking why has the share price actually been down for so long? Um, is it because of mismanagement? Mismanagement is it because of the industry being not so good. Is it because of the company not being so good? You know what's what's really going on there? Um, and one area to certainly look into is, is management's reaction to it. I, I like that perspective on on you know what are they doing to actually address it? Are they trying to do buybacks? Are they trying to do anything? Um, hmm. I didn't even think of the acquisition getting acquired lens uh, very much because that, that is a good point for some of these smaller companies um, where, where a lot of us might be looking in, in this value world. Um, so, yeah, definitely a good point there. Oh, well, you, you mentioned a couple other things. Well, what else were you thinking? Yeah, so, I mean, I think another one I had, which was just as a, uh, a broader one, is... Um, something to do to evaluate management by is their relationships to their stakeholders. So I've broken this down into sort of employees, customers, suppliers, shareholders, and maybe wider society as well. So for employees, I've sort of said you can you can do things like if a company issues employee satisfaction surveys, that can always be a good thing. But I, I don't – that's a company-published thing normally. So so you can put as biased. much weight as that as you, as you want into it, yeah. Speaking of but bias, th- yeah. But things like staff turnover rates are good things to look at if you can access them. Um, like I know some one company I own um, has like a very low single digit staff turnover compared to like the industry average of about fifteen percent or something. So it's that's that's always a good sign that you that the employees like working for the company. It's it's being well managed from that perspective. Perspective, and then another thing to do um, if you can is a little, I guess a little bit of scuttlebutt, which would be seeing what past and current employee company if you can find some forums i mean i know it can be a little dangerous looking at past employees they, they're generally <laughs> people that are going to have a more negative view but if you can find current employees <laughs> that's always the gold mine if you can reach out to True. people on linkedin or or whatever or if you just happen to if it's a big enough company you might end up just bumping into someone in daily life that works there or something yeah, or if it's I, uh, if it's it's a retailer or something you might be able to go visit the store and speak to employees and so on yeah quick quick point on that this really is in the this even smaller private realm but just uh i i was um there, there was a company that was for sale in in the the houston area that i was interested in and uh i had my so I, you know i was looking at it and all that and I was, I was pretty interested and wasn't sure if we we're going to do it or not. Uh, and then an employee from that company uh, applied to a job listing that I had opened like separately. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, Oh, this is interesting. So I, I asked him, you know, why, you know, why do you want to, you know, why are you applying to this job? Seems like you have a good thing over there. And he's like, Oh no, it's a sinking ship. Like, like, like people are getting <laughs> laid off and all this stuff. I'm like, Hmm, interesting. <laughs> Thank you for that note. But yeah, that, that, that it's just funny when you, uh, that was kind of a happy accident, I guess, uh, dodging a bullet, perhaps. But um, it would have been uh, quite yeah, funny it, if you. It would have been quite funny if you'd hired him and then he ended up working for the company he left. Yeah, <laughs> I'd be a little bit careful because of because of like uh, NDA stuff. And you know, if you're if you're looking in the business, you're not supposed to hire their employees. This is a little weird because he's applying <laughs> to me, so I don't know how. I, I didn't want to bother with it, but uh, uh, it was it was still good um good insight either way. <laughs> it doesn't mean I can't talk to him. <laughs> um, but yeah, that. that if you can get a, a current employee, that's certainly some valuable on the ground uh, perspective in either direction, positive or negative. It's great if you find if that they they like working there. That's always a good good sign because it's definitely not a given. Uh, <laughs> then it's a good place to work. Definitely, yeah. Um, all right. So yeah, I mean, um, but then looking at like customers, you can. I mean, there's various things depending on the what the kind of company is. It might be something that you can look at reviews for, for instance, or customer satisfaction surveys or whatever. Um, 
or you might be able to directly speak if it's a maybe a bigger com or a business to business company you might be able to speak to some businesses that have had dealings with them in the past and and get their views on them and so on it could be a, could be a good thing to do just to see how they're perceived um like i, I was looking at a company uh, in the uk called halfords which is like an auto repair company stuff like that and and what immediately put me off was when i started talking to a few people just people in my office and and people um and then and then afterwards once i got some negative feedback from those people all saying that it was a terrible place to go to and, and all this and, and it, yeah, been, right. it had terrible service i suddenly went oh okay let's have a look see if i can find online see what the general perspective is and it seems to be all very negative so i was thinking ah doesn't matter how cheap the company is i don't not it immediately put me off when i sort of found that out um right yeah when you can get it when you get some case study individual accounts that line up with the general consensus that's mm. like that's a, that's a, not a slam dunk, but it feels like it. <laughs> it. It definitely soured it for me, even though on paper it seems quite attractive from a valuation point of view. Right. Um, and then like from suppliers, so I mean this is actually one point that's shared between perhaps customs and suppliers and probably appeals to you, Jack, is uh, are there any lawsuits outstanding for the company? Is that something to have a look into? Some lawsuits. of the bigger ones. <laughs> I'm sweating. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's a good, yeah, that's always a, that, that's a tough one, especially as the company grows, because it seems like there's always a lawsuit, whether it's frivolous or not. Um, do you look for a particular type of lawsuit or just generally? Um, I think, it did, I think for me, um, it probably would apply more to things like, it depends what the lawsuit is, is it, and it depends on the company. I mean, I'd, so I've only now you're talking one. like an attorney. Yeah, <laughs> let's go around it. Yeah. There's there's only one company I have that's had a a legal dispute, but they actually um, and it was a mining company, and it was a I I guess you would call it as as a um, it was a mine that uh, that they had a royalty over, and they hadn't there was a dispute over how much they should have paid and so on, and the and the company the royalty company that I own uh, won the dispute, but. That's probably the only one that I've I've actually had to deal with, with a lawsuit on that respect. But there are definitely um, when it kind of, when you get to the bigger companies, like I imagine if you're dealing with you know Microsoft and all and or maybe you know any of the big tech companies or yeah drug companies or stuff like that, that you're going to yeah. pharmaceutical companies they have in lawsuits left, right, and centre, which is something yeah, that puts me off them. At, there is that real. There's always that kind of risk there. I mean, I'm I'm not a big fan of the the bio you know the pharmaceutical sector anyway just i've, I've seen too many films of, <laughs> of sure. them. well this is where you get you get touched onto the wider society bit where it does well, seem I, to be sometimes I, they choose business over the over sure <laughs> well i think when um when you but just backing up a bit when you get to companies that are really large that do get lawsuits all the time i think the at that point the bigger risk is just getting regulated out of something mm, um yeah but at that point, you're, it's just a different ball game. Um, you're probably going to have huge lobbying budgets and and, and yeah, trying yeah. to so they can draft that regulation uh, for themselves and their competitors. But <laughs> um, but uh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's kind of in the ballpark of lawsuits, but you're really not going to see that uh, in the, in the micro cap and even kind of mid cap. You no. don't really see that too much. It's really when you get up to the mega cap that they kind of are the market. Um, yeah, you might yeah. see it, and they they are targets as well for a lot yeah they right. become the bigger ways. target for for these lawsuits that may or may not be legitimate yeah but um yeah, exactly but yeah, i guess on the smaller scale it, it has a bigger impact having a lawsuit because it could be something that could have a real yeah. meaningful impact on the on the company's uh financials and what have you if they end up having to make some big payment um and it potentially they've got a smaller customer base as well um so it, have, having a souring a relationship there uh, with a big customer or something could could have True. a big impact as well, yeah. Or yeah. supplier. So I mean, on on that subject of suppliers, I also put down here: um, Do suppliers feel like they're getting a good deal? Are they? Is it? Is the has the company got them over a barrel? As like a maybe Facebook and Apple might be a good example there. <laughs> um, or, or like, um, is it a win-win? Yeah. yeah, is it a win-win? Do they, do they feel like it's a mutually beneficial relationship going on there? And um, or are they half? Are they? Do they have a monopoly? And this, you know, 
uh, su suppliers just have to sell to them because they're the only customer or something like that, you know. Oh, uh, that's, one that's, or two customers, yeah. Or, that's or kind of nice bird. to have, though, <laughs> you know, an actual monopoly. <laughs> yeah, but it is something that 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 if it's not a positive relationship, then it does mean that the suppliers would be potentially happier or the customers would be happier to jump ship if a competitor came up rather yeah. than if you've got so so they, it makes them more vulnerable the moat is more vulnerable to um somebody competition. You know, crossing it yeah, yeah the company because the competition wouldn't have to be that much better they they could potentially right. this it might have to inconvenience the supplier but or the customer but they might still go to them just because they've been getting a bad deal you know been treated badly by the other company that had the monopoly yeah you might call it um i like to call it kind of commoditized businesses where mm. you don't have much of a moat and often it's just kind of whoever's fastest and cheapest is who's going to get the business so if yeah if either of those breaks down it's too expensive or it's or it's you know too slow or whatever then any anyone else who can do it faster maybe they uh, run leaner they have better technology or, or software to, to run it faster that's a huge threat um so yeah, that, that that's a good point as well. And something else to be a little bit, I mean, sometimes people um from like a the cash flow statement point of view, it can look a bit positive if um if payables go up because it um this is referring to suppliers again, but if the payables go up it means that they've they've not they've been able to delay paying the things and you know the difference between them and the, the receivables uh, can be positive in the short term for cash flows but i do feel sometimes that can be a little bit of a warning sign because it could mean suppliers might be getting pissed off if they're getting if they're not getting paid promptly and, and what have mm. you so that can that can be a little bit of a warning sign as well are, are they are yeah. the the working capital being managed correctly Was it the yeah, yeah that's, a, that's a good one I, I haven't really thought of that one before uh, yeah yeah are, are they being paid slower than before or just slowly in general um mm. Kind of reminds me of uh, uh, pa Patrick on the Value Traps episode pointed out uh, Intel with their inventory uh, mm. skyrocketing. If you see a bunch of inventory building up, you know, begs the question, why is management trying to build up a big inventory for something for some reason? Or is it just because sales are dropping? You know, what's actually happening? Um, yeah. It's pretty real. I think it's pretty closely related to the receivables being delayed. I think so. Yeah. Um. And then, yeah, I mean, I, the last, so we kind of touched on the wiser society ones of regulation and impact and so on. But then mm -hmm. shareholders, I was sort of saying, um, we touched on this a little bit as well, that when I said, does management listen to and respond to shareholder concerns? But there's also mm -hmm. things like, are management open and transparent with it in their dealings with shareholders? Do they try and hide bad news from them? Or do, yeah, are, they, yeah. are, they, are they pretty, when bad news has come along, have they been upfront with it and, and things like that? You know, That's a tough one, though. That's a really tough one to figure out because if they're hiding it, you know. <laughs> so really yeah, gotta, but that's something that looking, looking back in history can be good. Like when the stock has had, you can look to see back when did, see a point where earnings fell or something like that and see, right, let's have a look at the sure. the reports around that time. What were they good, What were yeah, they good. saying? Things like that. If they were trying to sweep it under the rug and saying, oh, it's all macro, it's all wider economic <laughs> things every yeah, time, yeah, not, not taking any responsibility, then then that sometimes can be a bit of a, a bad thing. Yeah, I think yeah. that's a good way to put it. Are they taking responsibility for for bad things? Yeah, yeah, yeah I like that. Yeah. Yeah, and I, th I think that's... And the final one I might say on that is, what do shareholders think of management? And this is a pretty easy one. It might It's, it's debatable whether this is a, something you should listen to or not, because if you wanted to be a contrarian, then potentially... Yeah, you, you want to be taking the op if you if they don't like management or they don't like the company, maybe that's the time to be diving in. But, um, but yeah, that that's something that's pretty easy to get a gauge on as well because you know plenty of shareholders on social media shouting loudly. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know how much how much weight I would give that, but yeah, I, I think it comes back to kind of the logical logical concerns or or, or not. And it can be a bit of a warning if you have if you have like you know. In the case of like Tesla, for instance, Elon Musk lovers, Elon Musk fans, you know, they do, they do. It, that can be some something a bit of a warning sign, maybe. Yeah, it's a flag, we'll say. A yeah. Flag to, to do to take a look at, but yeah, it very it's very situational, I'd assume. But yeah, <laughs> kind of kind of goes to the general sentiment as well. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Well, I guess 
I think it's a pretty good spot to wrap up on it. We covered. I think we've got. I'm just going to. We cover might have a couple well. of questions here. We'll yeah. Um, yeah. One of our Luises <laughs> asked, uh, "How many people are considered management? Just the CEO, CFO, the whole board?" Uh, I kind of. Yeah, I consider the board and executives, so pretty much everyone that would have mm. a higher level decision to make. Um, sometimes that's uh, just a few people. Sometimes it's a whole board. I think it depends on the company uh, and, and you know, what executives have what power. Some of them will have a lot more. You know, take Mark Zuckerberg as an example. He has all the voting shares, so, mm. you know, tons of power flows through him. But take a look at some other companies where, power is kind of diluted a lot more you know it could be totally different i don't know if you think of that any differently yeah i mean it really depends on like you say yeah, the ownership like sometimes you'll have a board and maybe the chairman of the board is someone with a really massive stake in the company like mm-hmm. maybe even a majority ownership and they and then the ceo and cfo are people that they've they've recruited um to do the day-to-day op- run the day-to-day operations for them and that in that case they'd be particularly important i think yeah. um and generally, I would definitely include the chairman in when I'm considering people. That the, maybe the non-executives, I wouldn't factor in so much because they're not so involved in the day-to-day running. But yeah, chairman is important, and definitely the CEO and CFO and and any other members of the executive team. So to, companies have all sorts these days: marketing officers, <laughs> commercial yeah. officers, everything. <laughs> sure. Yes. Um, all right. Well, thank you for the question, Louise. Uh, and then here's one for you, James, from the other Luis again. Do you invest in Chinese companies? Oh, People love to about China here. It's an interesting one, actually. My my wife is Chinese, and I do actually a bit. I visit China quite regularly with her, so I potentially would be a naturally good fit for investing in the Chinese market. But I uh, I feel in some ways it has uh, <laughs> it scared me off a little bit. My experiences of visiting there, so. And it, I think, I think for, as well for me, it's more the way that you have to invest. The thing that puts me off more, I think, in China is is the the method by which you have to invest. Going through these remote entities, they're not you're not really controlling the shares and things like that. It, that's, that's probably the biggest thing that puts me off. Rather than, I mean, the Chinese companies, I've, I'm not got a problem with them themselves, but. That that thing, just that little bit of a chance of your shares just being taken away, and and are you actually going to get the return? You know, get given the company's earnings and what have you. Stuff is it's just a little bit of a, a factor for me that, that yeah. stops me. It, but yeah, it, it, even even true love couldn't bring you over the line. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, maybe it would be different if I if my wife opened up an account in China, for instance. Um, yeah, <laughs> being a Chinese citizen, and she opened Give up a the- brokerage account there, and she could directly own them. Maybe, maybe I would consider it. Maybe that's something I would consider in the future, especially if I did spend some time living there. But I, I would struggle to, to do it myself, doing it remotely because they don't provide easy access to the markets officially. Yeah, um, right, right. For ex- for foreign shareholders, so yeah. I think that's a fair take. <laughs> Interesting, regardless. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, any anything else then to wrap up on? I don't see uh, other questions. Um, but thank you to everyone who's participating in the chat, especially the the Luises. You guys carried a lot of the first half. <laughs> um, but uh, anything else on this topic of management or, or anything else? No, I think we've uh, covered it pretty exhaustively here. Yeah? <laughs> well, I think, us- I, think, I think there's more we could go into deeper. But yeah, it's just, <laughs> but this is a good survey of kind of just a bunch of things to look out for. Um, on the positive and negative side. Uh, I, I, I think if, I've, if there's a key theme or takeaway, it seems just like logical decision-making, uh, yeah. making logical decisions in whatever it is, whether that's buybacks, whether that's strategic initiatives, whether that's you know not doing something versus doing another thing, whether that's listening to shareholders or not. You know, uh, if, if it's logical, then probably be in a good spot. And if it's not logical, then who knows? <laughs> so, uh Yeah. Well, thank you, James. Appreciate you coming on. We'll have to have you on the the live show again uh, if if you're willing to return, and I'll uh, see if we can get some of the other members to come as well. I got to throw Absolutely. my man Tom under the bus. He said he'd be here, but it's early in the morning. <laughs> He's got a young baby. I don't know. So uh, we'll see if he's on next time. But 
Um, but th thank you for uh, for doing this one with me, and thank you everyone else for stopping by the show. And be sure to subscribe if you haven't already, so you don't miss next week's and all the other content we're going to be putting out. Um, so uh, with that said, until next time, everyone. See you. Thanks for tuning in to Punch Card Investing. The contents of this show should not be used as investment advice or as a recommendation to invest in a particular security. Please consult with a licensed investment advisor if you need investment advice. All investments carry risk and the potential for monetary loss. Thank you and see you next week.